Oh, good morning. John 17, verses 20 to 26. This is where we'll be together this morning. In particular, we'll be in verses 20 to 23, although we will see Christ finish out his prayer here all the way through verse 26. I think that we'll see that there are several reasons why this is an especially important passage for us to study together. One of the reasons that's, that it's important what we're about to do is that this is a place where we find language that can be confusing and that has been misunderstood. Some places in God's Word are very clear on their face, uh, and others are not. I think there are some ways in which this passage is not. But let me make a claim to you here as we get started. It's that I'm going to suggest that Jesus' statements here are, in fact, very understandable uh, and are of tremendous value to us. So I'm excited about what we're being given to do together this morning as we look at this text. Uh, let's begin by hearing the passage. I'll read verses 20 to 26 from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Our Lord ends his prayer like this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You can hear in what we've read that the subject matter that concerns us especially this morning is the subject matter of unity and specifically what it is that our Lord is praying for here. What is the unity that he's describing and that he's praying on, for on our behalf? He says a number of things here. He relates it to the unity between the Father and the Son. He speaks of our unity together. He speaks of our unity with God. How are we to understand what he's praying for? If we slow down in hearing him, there is enough here to help us draw conclusions about what it is he's actually requesting. And we can answer two very important questions, uh, and that's what we'll do as we begin. These two are wrapped up in the first point uh, that we will look at this morning if you're taking notes. We, we can answer questions about both the nature and the function of this unity that he's praying for. The nature and the function. What is the nature of this unity? What kind of unity is he describing? here in his prayer, and the function of it. 
Whatever it is, what does he intend to bring out of it? What is he praying that would be produced uh, as a result of this unity? We'll move through three points together this morning, but this is the first one, the question of the nature and function of the unity that our Lord is praying for. And for both of those, nature and function, we'll look at verses 21 and 23 together. And we can do that because there's a helpful pattern at work there. Just listen to them again. Notice how similar these two verses are. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You hear how parallel those two are to each other, how much they have in common. To understand the nature of the unity that Christ is asking for for us, we have to recognize first that he's asking for two things, not one. He's asking for two things in terms of unity. I would have us see them first in verse 21, and then we'll look at them again in verse 23 to see how Jesus joins them together. But look at verse 21 for a moment. Notice that at the beginning of it, he's praying for our unity together. And he describes what he wants for us there by using a comparison. He says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's the comparison he's making in order to describe the unity between us that he's praying for. Now, it's not clear to see in the ESV here in what we read, but grammatically, there is very good reason to understand Jesus to be ending that thought there and starting a second uh, thought, making a second request with the second that in verse 21. To see this, you need to be looking with kind of a magnifying glass at verse 21 there, don't you? There's two that's there. He says, 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And what I'm saying is that he now makes another request after that, that they may also be in us. There's a split there, grammatically. And for that reason, any of you who are reading from the Holman Christian translation or the Net Bible or the NIV will see the sentence end right there and a new sentence start. So, for example, the Holman Christian Bible reads like this in verse 21. May they all be one as you, the Father, are in me and I am in you, period. I pray that they will be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. You hear how that changes things and how it clarifies what exactly he's asking for. I find that wording even from that translation very helpful because it makes clear that uh, he gives that comparison, the just as, the comparison, in reference to our unity together as his people. And that then there's a second thing that he prays for, which is our unity with him. So if we're trying to understand the nature of the unity he's praying for, the kind of unity he's asking for for us, we have to ask the question twice. First, there's a unity that he describes between us. We'll start there. It's the one that he gives this comparison with. Now, usually if Jesus is drawing us a picture, if he's making a comparison or something like that in order to explain something to us, we shouldn't expect it to be unclear. He's really good at making comparisons and analogies and clarifying things. 
And that's what he does here. He gives us something to help us understand the unity that he's praying for for us. He says it's just what he's praying for is just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. It's like the unity that is seen between the Father and the Son. So what do we see in that unity that they share with one another? Well, we see Father and Son who are distinguishable from each other. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. And yet, who are united together. Now, certainly, it is a comparison that has its limits. That's not hard for us to recognize, is it? Christian brothers and sisters are not in all ways united together like the eternal Father and Son are united together. That's obvious. His point here in making this comparison is to point to the simultaneous diversity and yet unity that is seen within the Trinity. This is what our Lord prays for us. That even as we are distinct from each other, and in fact distinct in the very ways intended and created by God, yet that what unites us together makes us to be one in purpose, in love, in action, undertaken with one another and for one another. There's a lot more that we will say about that later, but this is the nature of the first kind of unity that he's requesting for us. That we would be, diverse though we are, that we would be joined together in unity of love and purpose. Now, see, the second kind of unity then that he prays for, it comes at the end of verses 21 and 23. So verse 21, he has said, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now here comes the second kind of unity he's praying for, that they may also be in us. That too is repeated in verse 23, although a little bit differently. The way he says it in verse 23 is he says, I in them and you, Father, in me. Many commentators have, have heard here, and, I'm, and I agree with them, a, a deliberate pointing in this prayer to the same realities that Jesus spoke about in chapter 15 when he talked about the vine and the branches. He said in John 15, 4 to his disciples, abide in me and I in you. He's already using this kind of language. It's also exactly what Jesus spoke about in chapter 14. So we're still seeing this week ways in which this prayer is really a summary of the whole gospel up to this point. Look back, if you would, just quickly at John 14, 23. Remember what he said there. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is what we've heard him to be describing in terms of what is, what is his purpose? What is he intending to accomplish? And in, in our prayer here in John 17, we find our Lord praying for the very thing then that he came to accomplish, which is that we would be joined to him and thus joined to the triune God. Having received his word, we therefore receive life itself from him, just like a branch lives and flourishes because it is joined to the vine itself, and life flows to that branch. This is a picture that we've seen many times already. It's a beautiful thing. And in this prayer, it's also a very understandable thing. This unity between us and the triune God that he is asking for. This is not a cryptic saying 
about us becoming a fourth member of the Trinity, us becoming God. There's, there's, there's no sense of that here at all. It's a simple reiteration of the promise of God in Christ that Jesus has been teaching us about throughout his ministry. That by his work, we will be joined to God in the perfect fellowship that we as his image-bearing creatures were created for. Jesus is praying that that would come to pass, that that would be. Now, notice one more thing about the nature of this unity, or we can say these unities that he is praying for. Notice how verse 23 puts the two of them together. We read in the ESV, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Now there we do have what it sounds like. We have a description of a relationship between these two things. The unity between us and God, I and them and you and me, as having a goal, as having an outcome, a purpose, that they may become perfectly one. So our union with God is described first. That's what you need to notice there. And then he says that, or so that, they may become perfectly one. Do you see how he's saying here that it is because of our union with him It's because of Christ in us. It's by that relationship that our union together will be perfected. Literally, the end of that says that they may be brought to their goal, brought to their completion in one. His work in us brings about, accomplishes an intended end of of unity amongst the people of God. And I'm convinced that it is terribly important, my friends, that we understand what he's describing there. Because the way that I've most often heard this part of the prayer described boils down to the notion of of a prayer for Christians to get along with each other. That's really what he's praying for. He just wishes we would get along better individually. But my friends, if we recognize... First of all, does he want us to get along with one another? Of course he does, right? Uh, In holiness according to the standards of God's word. But if we recognize what he's just said, that our union with him is what he's saying will produce this oneness among us that he's praying for, how can we think that he's talking about something that he's hoping will happen? What in this prayer that we've seen has described hopes and dreams of Jesus that we're just as likely to fail as to succeed. I do not at all believe that he's talking about something here that is up in the air in terms of whether it will come into being or not. Now, to be sure, we are more than capable of limiting, misrepresenting, failing in a way that impacts the appearance of this unity. We know that's the case. There's nothing that you and I have a hand in that we are not very capable of messing up. And that's clear even given how Christ describes the function of the unity that he's praying for. Uh, So let's pause for just a moment on what we're saying and notice the function that he says. What is the end? What is the purpose for this unity? We hear it in both 21 and 24. Verse 21, the function or the purpose of this unity is, quote, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. 
The intended function of this unity that he's describing and praying for is to display the truly divine origin of Christ's coming and work, as well as to show that the Father's love has indeed reached sinners in the world. That's the function. And as I said, it's obvious to us all that individual Christians and individual churches can live and function in ways that fail to show those things. We can misrepresent the Lord to our shame. The longer we live, the more we realize that it's by God's grace that we are useful to him in any season. But to individualize the prayer that he's praying here, these statements that he's making, to simply apply them to the consistent living of you or me in any given moment, that is to fall very short of what Jesus is praying for here. And I think maybe this is a helpful way to understand what I'm talking about. Ask the Bible this question. Where is it that the unity that we're reading about this morning comes to fruition and accomplishes these functions that he's describing? We've seen him talk about unity between God and man, where we're drawn together organically in him and unity among us in that way, such that Christ is shown to be God sent and that the love of God for sinners is shown to have come to earth. Sinners who are now objects of his saving love, right? Where does the Bible say those unities are displayed? If you ask that question, suddenly these verses become crystal clear. And this brings us to the second point this morning, the manifestation of this unity that he's praying for. It all falls into place. Christ is praying here about his impending creation of the church. It's the church where otherworldly unity is found among mankind in this earth. It's the church where this divinely accomplished unity between Christ and his people is established and is seen on earth. Suddenly, both of the unities that he's been praying about fall into place. Our union with God is displayed in the church because the, the universal church is the very body of Christ. Isn't that over and over again how the church is described in the New Testament? As the body of Christ. Colossians 1.24, Paul says he's doing what he's doing, quote, for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And that body of Christ, reality, is manifested in local churches, where we find the exact same realities spoken of in Scripture. So, for example, listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Starting in verse 12, he says this, For just as the body, the image he's using is of a human body, right? Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. This, he says, is the manifestation on earth of the body of Christ. And although there are many churches on earth, he's not describing there multiplicity of churches, as if one church is a hand and another church is a foot. Rather, he's describing the diversity that is experienced in local churches. What is it like? Well, it's like 
a single body that has many members to it. Boy, you hear that in the context of what we've seen this morning, and you realize that sure sounds just like the comparison that Jesus was making in verse 21. When he's praying that our unity would be like the diversity and unity seen in the Trinity. So that both unities that we're hearing that Christ is praying for are exactly what's being described when the New Testament describes the church. That place where the body of Christ is to be seen, where our union with God is visible on earth, and that place where our just the diversity and unity has brought us together as individuals. It's the church. And wouldn't you know it then? It's within the context of local churches that what we have seen Jesus describe as the function of the unity. Remember what the purpose was for this prayer? That Christ's divine origin would be displayed and that the Father's love for his people would be displayed? Wouldn't you know it? It's in the context of local churches where that function is accomplished as well. Jesus said something profound in Mark 10, 29 and 30. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Walk away from the world to follow Christ and his gospel, whatever you lose, he makes this promise. You gain, not in the age to come, you gain in this time, brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children. You gain people to be responsible for, to care for. You gain people who will make your well-being their responsibility and will care for you. People who will be there to guide you, to share wisdom with you, like a father and a mother. People who will ask for your wisdom. People who will love you, forgive you, laugh through life with you. People who will stand shoulder to shoulder beside you when the waves hit. Think of the other sorts of descriptions of church body life in the New Testament and how they bring us to this very same function, this very same end, the same display of God loving his people. Hebrews 13.3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, listen to this, since you also are in the body. This is the point that he's making. This is what is displayed by the body. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. The church is an outpost of the heavenly city on this earth. It is literally the place on earth where God's love and power are on display. Never perfectly, but truly. The place where God's love and power are on display. 
which is interesting because isn't that exactly the role that Jesus himself played as he walked the earth? Hasn't he been the place where God's love and power have been on display throughout this gospel? And now he gives this to us. In that context, we can understand the statement that we've jumped over so far that he makes about glory in verse 22. Notice what he says. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. It's this very unity in its nature and in its function that is the embodiment and the playing out of this glory. One man who has written what many consider one of the best commentaries on John's gospel, his name is Herman Ritterboss, just a very fantastic help. His description of this glory was, was, I appreciate it. This is what he said. Glory, therefore, refers here not to a single all-surpassing gift, but to Jesus' all-embracing authority and power and its manifestation during the performance of his task in the world. So when Jesus speaks here of the glory given to him by the Father as something he then gives to the disciples, this can hardly refer to anything other than that in their association with him, they will be involved in the performance of that task. And not only for their own salvation, but also as fellow agents in carrying out Jesus' task. My friends, he just described the commission that has been given to the church didn't he? And we accomplish that mission as we put on display the ways that God's love characterizes and drives the life of this body and the lives of those in this body, in our unity and in our diversity. Turn over with me just one more place here. Look at Romans 12 and find verse 4. I'll read down to verse 13, so I'd like you to see this with your eyes. Follow along here. Here are the ways that God's call upon his people is described as manifesting itself. Romans 12, 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I find it so helpful even the way he orders those because although at points he makes statements that can that could potentially seem to apply just anywhere we go. He keeps bringing us back to statements that make it clear he's talking in particular about body life. This is how we are to live with one another. And how does he describe it here? He speaks of God's 
individual giftings of us that are joined together by his work in weaving our lives together. And this picture is the result. It's a pretty amazing picture, isn't it? It's the kind of thing someone would read and think, oh, if only that kind of a life, that kind of a fellowship, a community could exist. My friends, what we just read there, in the year 2023, there are pockets of that going on all over the world. In a world where the kinds of headlines that we see these days that almost don't even make sense to us can happen, this is happening. In a world where right out in public, Female speakers are being punched in the face by male protesters. In cities with so much corruption and loss of integrity that companies are literally closing because of uncontrollable theft. In cities where the very rule of law is failing because police cannot hold violent crime at bay any longer. In those places and in times like these, pockets of that are found. Not perfectly, but truly. This is where the power and authority of God is proven to have come to this earth in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's not seen. It's not displayed in this kind of a fundamental, primary way. In the form of God handing out individual free passes to heaven. It's not the way that the Bible describes the salvation that God is bringing to His people. It's seen in communities of individuals who have been transformed by the renewing of their minds and have been equipped by the Spirit of God himself to be fruitful in particular areas of gifting. And my friends, we we need to be reminded of that this morning. If you are in Christ, you have been equipped by God himself to be found useful for service in his body. And these things should move us to become quite driven individuals. As we chew on the question of that, for me, what role am I to play in the production of a picture so beautiful as this? I really think we can tend to miss what we see stressed in our text this morning, in this morning's part of Jesus' prayer, which is the importance of this love and mutual commitment being seen being visible, visually. I would suggest this is one of maybe the central ways we might apply what we're finding this morning. Here's what I'm thinking. With with some spiritual gifts that are described in the Bible, we are pretty consistent, and we do a good job of noticing that although they describe responsibilities that every Christian has in a general way, yet God has gifted some people uniquely, and they should step up to that responsibility. So we're all in situations, here's some examples. We're all in situations where we, we need to work faithfully to teach God's word at times. Whether in our family or in different contexts, we're in positions where we need to be able to bring tr- the truth of God's word to bear, to explain it, to uh, apply it. And yet, God has gifted certain individuals with a spiritual gift of teaching And those people ought to step forward and be used in the church, right? And we recognize that. We're all called to evangelize. 
And God does put us all in places where we are to give account for the hope that is in us. And yet Ephesians 4 describes some as evangelists who are uniquely gifted and therefore should live as aware of that unique gifting and be zealous to lead out in that area. A great number of people are called upon to exercise leadership in some sphere and seasons. And yet some have the spiritual gift of leadership that has been given for this purpose and should then be recognized and called to serve the church with that leadership. You see the distinction that I'm making. Here's my question. Do do we do that same thing with things like the spiritual gifts of helps and service? Think of the qualities that are manifested in those spiritual gifts. Generosity, hospitality, the ability to make people feel welcome. Obviously, we're all called to prize those attributes and to try to cultivate them in ourselves, aren't we? And yet, God has called and gifted unique, particular individuals within local churches in just those ways. Do we as a body think like that? Do we work to recognize those gifts as they manifest themselves? Are you working to identify the ways that God has gifted you? If you find in that particular sphere, for example, that those qualities, those things come naturally to you, You notice that God opens doors and puts you in positions where you can make use of those gifts. You notice that God seems to use them to bless other people. What you're finding is, you're finding that this is how God has gifted you in this particular way. And the point that we find here this morning is that you should then sense that you are called to a unique leading out in that way. And in fact, get this, as we're hearing about the importance of this visual the function of this unity coming out. You can think of it as representing your church body in that. Who are the ones God has blessed our body with who are opening their homes multiple times a month, helping newcomers to feel welcome and to make relationship? Not necessarily the newcomers, although we could include them, but newcomers in general. Bringing people into relationship. It's one of the things that just constantly amazes me how richly God has blessed this congregation with that particular gift of encouragement and generosity and hospitality. And again, the rest of us do not get a pass, do we? Because those gifted individuals are here. Any more than parents, for example, get a pass on teaching their children simply because God has gifted some as teachers in the church. It doesn't work like that. But my point is that as some of you discern that you are gifted in that way, you ought to hear these descriptions in John 17, 20 to 23. And realize how significant that gift is. How significant you are as the face of the body of Christ. If some are feet and mouths and eyes, you are a hand, and a face. You who are gifted with hospitality, helps, encouragement. Your gifting is precious. And I don't say that to flatter you. I say that to charge you. 
And so we've seen here, and I hope better understood, exactly what unity our Lord is praying for his people in this prayer. It is a living union with God in Christ that then results in this incredible otherworldly union between us as members of his body. Those who are diverse and yet have been brought into membership in a single body. One in unity, not uniformity. He joins us together amid the very diversity that he has planned. And the result is that this comprehensive care and love of God for his son is shown by his love for his people, which is exactly what's put on display as the life of a local body does what Romans 12 describes. And by allowing us to participate with Christ in this display, what verse 22 made clear is we have been given the very glory that Christ himself was given as he played that part on earth. This is no small thing that he has given to us. Small not in its gift or in its responsibility. One last thing I would have us see about this unity then comes not from John 17, but from 1 Corinthians 5. We find a description there, we find a command even, about the limits of that unity. It's the last thing I would have us think about here. We've seen descriptions of this unity, but 1 Corinthians 5 says something about where that, that unity finds its limits. You might look with me over at 1 Corinthians 5 and find verse 11. This is the third and final thing we'll see here. And now that we have seen what the purpose of the unity is in the first place, it's very easy to understand the reason for the limits that God puts on this unity. 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul writes here of one who bears the name of brother, is claiming to be a believer, and thus to belong to this body of Christ, and yet he is guilty, he says, guilty of sin. This is not a man who has stumbled into sin and is repentant before God. This is a man who is living in rebellion, living in contradiction to the very life of Christ that he claims to be joined to. Which is to say, he is a walking contradiction of the power and authority of Christ on earth, isn't he? And what is the command? He says not to associate with him. He says not even to eat with such a one. And it can be almost stunning to us, I think, in our day and age to hear how intensely prioritized body life is in what he says. Paul says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Can you hear the priority that is given here 
to guarding the very display that Christ is praying for in John 17. Friends, this is the entire basis for church discipline. And if you've seen this morning the purpose of the unity that we're called to, the purpose and the function of what God has done through the death of Christ in uniting a people together and to him and displaying it on earth in the church, if we've understood that, we can see here why it is such a massive failure of our time that so many churches do not even know what church discipline is, much less practice it. It is not a kindness. It's a complete systemic failure of the reason for which the church exists. It's a failure of the very purpose for which God has established this unique picture of unity between man and God. Because it is a place on earth where Christ's authority and power is put on display. This is the glory that has been given to us. And what we've seen in John 17 is that Jesus is praying for the formation of exactly what God did form. He's praying for the living organism of the church, the body of Christ on earth after his ascension. In it, the very glory of God is on display because this authority and power is on display. Now, make no mistake, it's on display in exactly the way that Paul said it's on display in 2 Corinthians 4. He said there that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, Paul said there, that's a treasure that we have in what? That's the treasure that we have in jars of clay. What's that? That's, that's you and me. Right? We are frail and fallen creatures indeed, we who have this treasure, we who have been given this glory. We all stumble in many ways, as James says. But Paul explains there in 2 Corinthians that that is in fact a part of God's very purpose in doing it the way that he has done it. He says there that this is, quote, to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see how perfect this plan is. How on earth do these pathetic creatures endure in love together through the years? How are these people so afflicted in so many ways and yet never crushed? How are they so often perplexed and yet never driven to the despair that so characterizes the world around us? This is the power of God on display. For that matter, how are these fallen and sinful people able to humble themselves? How are they able to seek forgiveness when they sin against their brother? And how are they able to forgive when they're sinned against? And how are they able to work toward restoration when it's hard and when it's a lengthy process? With true love that Paul says keeps no record of wrong. These are the power of God on display. This is what Christ prays for, for his people. And this is what the Father has granted. Jesus' prayer ends with two simple assurances. If you're out of John 17, you can come back here. 
There's two things he says in assurance about this unity. He says in verse 24 that this unity will finally find expression in unending heavenly unity with him. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is not a temporary union that he has created, but a permanent one. Permanent between us and permanent between us and God. He says in verses 25 and 26 that with the promise of that permanent union is a promise of the permanent experience of God's love. The very thing that has brought us into this union, which is the love of God, will be ours forever. How rich is this prayer? That your Savior prayed for you. This prayer that our Savior has prayed for us. My friends, this should fill us today. It should fill us every time we come back to this text and we think about these things. It should fill us with assurance of his love, of his dedication to his people. It should fill us with confidence. It should fill us with what can only be described by the word zeal. And so what Art read to us at the beginning, specifically Titus 2, 14, suddenly makes perfect sense as a description of God's redemptive purposes. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The Christian life is not so complicated. Would you pray with me? God, we confess together this morning that we are prone to error on both sides of the road that we have seen. We are prone to celebrate salvation by grace as if Christ has bought us freedom so that we might live for ourselves and forget you. And we are prone to consider our works as somehow payments by which we earn our place with you. And for both of those things, God, we ask your forgiveness. We thank you this morning for our Lord's prayer for us as his people. And we thank you for answering it. We thank you for bringing your diverse people together in union molding and forming us into one body by which Christ's power and authority on earth are displayed. God, we pray for your church in the world. But because of where you have placed us in particular, Father, we pray for this church. I pray for our church, that you would continue your work in honing and augmenting the display of your goodness that you intend by our existence for all to see. And Father, as the world does see you at work in us, may it serve exactly as our Lord said that it would in Matthew chapter 5, that as people see our good works, they would give glory to our Father who is in heaven. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you once more. Would you stand one last time with me? Let's respond.